Welcome to Creative Welly, episode 19, Courageous Conversations with Bold Humans. My name is DK, and a big shout out right at the beginning to Jono from Empire Films, who records the video podcast, and obviously you're listening to the audio podcast, which is that taken from, but also to David as well, to Flashdog Studios for hosting us. Thank you to those chaps for making this available. In this episode, you get to listen and maybe watch, if you click over, to Paula Esket. District Libraries Manager of Waimakariri District Council, and also Ari Sargent, Managing Director of Octopus Energy. Between them both, they have a huge amount of experience in their respective industries, that is both librarianship and energy. Enjoy. Let's start with a nice easy one in terms of what have you done in the last few days that's really excited you? Anything been going on? I've got my whole leadership team, so on a professional level, I've got my whole leadership team away. So that's a first for the org to have us all away. It's a first for them. Some of them have been in their role for 20, 25 years. So to all be away as a leadership team, we're actually staying somewhere really nice. So it feels, oh. yeah, and it just is that sense of actually putting some money where the words are about the strength of the mm. team. Um, yeah, it's come at a nice time. Was there a specific reason why you all went away? Like a, yeah, a, a piece a f- of work? Yeah, a or public a... forum here, and we were really fortunate to get an opportunity to apply for central government funding, or it would never have happened. Right. So on the back of a whole lot of extra work, you know, generated from, it's almost like the gift that has been COVID for libraries, we've mm-hmm. got this opportunity. Yeah, and our speakers this morning were just a- amazing. So yeah, that's really cool. Really, that's, that's a highlight. Mm. Did the play as well as work? Yeah, well, we'll see tonight. <laughs> I'm encouraging it. I'm encouraging it. I've signed the seat. It's all you can do. <laughs> yes, it's not ended yet. No, That's no, cool. no, no. That's a good one, though, bringing people together. Yeah. How about you, Addy? Um, nothing sort of singly, but it's, you know, we've been, as a startup, we've been working kind of six months or so, and some of the threads are starting to come together now, so mm-hmm. we're just starting to get some structure around some of the ideas that are floating around, so it's kind of nothing particular that's happened in the last week or so, but, you know, it just feels like progress, yeah. Lovely, and in yeah. startup mode, you need those little uh, steps, yeah, even up very incrementally small, right, yeah. just to keep you that momentum yep, absolutely. going yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. So where, do I, where would you position yourself uh, in terms of that startup mode? Only because I know you've done it a few times. So when you reflect on where you are at the moment with Octopus, uh, how starty are you in the startup? It, yeah, it's kind of weird. <clears throat> um, so if you, if you think back to my time in PowerShop where we started from literally nothing and yeah. built something and then took it to the world, and it was kind of the, we were the hub and there was other spokes. Octopus, we're the spoke, and we're kind of so it's quite a different thing. So there's there's something that already exists, and we kind of have to recreate it, which is quite challenging because you kind of you you're more constrained by other people's historic decisions and their processes and their aspirations and so on. So it's it's actually different being on the on the you know, and you can see why you know we used to have some you know our, our customers on the other end of the the line had some frustrations over the years and, and putting the issue on my foot, you can kind of see why. So it's, yeah. Mm. So coming back to the original question, where do we sit? It's kind of weird. So in New Zealand, in our office, we've essentially got three mini businesses, if you like. So there's the, the genuine startup, new electricity retailer in New Zealand, which is very early stage. We've got a team supporting 
octopuses activities in Australia and that was kind of a COVID thing that they couldn't fly people from the UK and we were mm -hmm. kind of same time zone and so we ended up with a bunch of people working on the Australian project and then we've got a bunch of people that we've been employing over the last couple of months who are doing overnight customer support for the UK, not voice but digital, So, and that's quite a well established business. So okay. under the one roof we've got from very early stage to more mature, so it's quite a quite an unusual kind of combination of activities. And just so we know <coughs> what you're talking about specifically, Octopus is a startup here but it's not a startup elsewhere, right? It's, it's not, it's it started in the UK 2016, so it's five or six years old. Right. Um, so it's it's a new business, but mature. Yeah. Um, they've got two million odd customers in the UK. Um, but in the last two years is really when they've started their, their global expansion. So they're in multiple markets. So there's uh, they're obviously in the UK, bought a retail business in Germany, bought a retail business or two now in Texas, done a partnership in Australia with Origin, done a joint venture in Tokyo with Tokyo Gas, and they're oh. starting in New Zealand and looking for more. So it's kind of, it's that sort of chaotic stuff that, you know, yeah. really hard to get your arms around and kind of being, you know, at the end of the day, we're, we're a pimple on the arse of their business, so trying to, trying to create meaning out of that is, is yeah. Is that the tagline? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Octopus Energy, pimple on the arse of the big business. Exactly. You've got some really great graphics <laughs> online. <laughs> we were trying to decode them this morning. That would make a great one. Mm, definitely. <laughs> but, it's, but it's kind of exciting at the same time. It's sort of being, so it gives us the opportunity to be kind of the experimental arm of the business mm. um, and, and kind of try some stuff, which is, which is really good. And, you know, just be create our own our own persona within that sort of yeah. bigger environment. And also from a customer point of view, you know, global warming by definition is a global problem. Mm. Um, so being part of a global organisation, you know, our customers can have a, a, a kind of global influence, a part of a, a bigger thing. So that's that's really important from a, from a customer perspective. I'm interested, before we go a little bit deeper with the energy system and everything else, to just make it a little bit, I suppose, personal. Uh, from your leadership, perspective you know you've been a veteran in this space for about 30 years and how have you evolved as a leader and what are your leadership values and characteristics do you think now if I could ask you? Yeah I guess I mean I've yeah, obviously learned a lot over that time I think deep I mean I've been described as intelligently disobedient which is kind of a pretty, <laughs> a pretty good title. So That's lovely. Yeah yeah I, I, I posted something on LinkedIn a couple of years ago and somebody commented that you know they observed me as being intelligently disobedient. I thought, well, I'm going to steal that one because it's a you know it's a perfect description. So it's you know bend the rules, stretch the rules, yeah. but you know don't don't do it recklessly. Do it for, with mm. purpose. And so that's kind of my you know my my modus operandi, if you like, sort of you know challenge the rules, be radical, be disruptive, but work within limits. You know, and I, I don't you know I don't like rules, but at the end of the day, you know. You want to know that in New Zealand everybody drives on the left-hand side of the road. So there's some rules that actually gotcha. make sense, but there's other rules that don't make sense, and they're mm. the ones to challenge and push. And so that you know, so that's my modus operandi. And, and the leadership is about, I guess, mentoring people into that same philosophy. So you know, yeah. push it, push forward with good ideas. Don't be put off by those sort of barriers that you know might be rules or regulations or processes or whatever. Just kind of you know, be creative and innovative and, and solve problems that way. That's lovely, man. Thank you for being honest with that. I'm going to ask the same question to you, Paula. In your leadership position as head of uh, Waimakariki, have I said it right? Waimakariki. Oh, so close. Close. Um, kind of how do you deconstruct your, I suppose, leadership values and approaches? 
I'm just going to reference your intelligent disobedience. Yeah. I adored that when I saw that the other night. It's like, because oh, <coughs> I mean, I sit in that disruption space, but that's so cliched now. Um, you know, because we've been trying to flip what libraries, mm. the primary branding object of libraries, if we meant one, two, three, is books. books. <laughs> but it's sort of flipped, and the primary branding object is people. Right. So people fill our spaces and physical mm. items line our walls. That's the sort of flip. And the idea of library as a platform for community activation, but community to do for each other, or as a place of refuge, yeah. um, and, 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 and. So we're not saying, or, you've got to have this, or mm. this. It's and, 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 and. So I suppose when I think about, you know, I've been in libraries for... 30-odd years, and it was very different. It was very permissions-focused. We measured success on transactions, and that sort of really flipped on its head for me. I've sort of sat in the creative commons and the open Mm -hmm. education, open information space long enough now to know that actually, you know, you've got a set of created and curated collections based on people with certain ideas and certain privilege sitting in those roles and we collect for our served and in a lot of places we collect for our super served Mm. who falls through our net so if you're going back to that leadership question what sort of people are we trying to bring on Mm. our teams to have that lens and then how do we activate and enable and give agency to those people we've already got so I suppose mine is I, I mean I just love that intelligent disobedience um, that I, I can't stand rules. I struggle working for local government with the structures and strictures and underlined and reinforced and highlighted rules. But some rules are made to be challenged mm-hmm. and although we have to work within local government act and all of that sort of that paperwork, we can speak up for and advocate for yeah. and tell stories of that change the mindsets of people who make the decisions. Mm. So I'm, my leadership's really, um, I demonstrate breaking the rules and I demonstrate failure regularly and I demonstrate probably being a little bit outspoken so that those in the team feel that that's a safe space to challenge ideas mm. and encourage that within the framework of being respectful but also um, recognising our privilege. Because libraries, we've, we're just so it's a such a unique position. Libraries, galleries, museums, the whole glam sector. Mm. We are really, I heard it this morning, um, Courtney Johnston, the CEO, the uh, chief executive of Te Papa, was yeah. saying, you know, we're a mirror on societies, but are we really? So, mm. yeah, my leadership is really around that and, and, and giving people a chance to try and fail, try and fail, yeah. and celebrate the failure, because what did you learn? So there's so many levels there I can pick up on, but I want to mm. maybe trying to f- a focus on the curation aspect of what libraries do. Um, I've, I've always, as you know, been fascinated with libraries and I've spoken at several conferences. We've partnered on things together. And um, spaces of curated knowledge is what I would think, think libraries become. But like you, yeah, I'm now being challenged to think much differently about libraries as a, as a space for people, which I just love that little rebrand of books now, now with people. Um, how has that gone down, though, in the existing library community uh, or profession or industry sector, whatever you call it, with other librarians? I think the, 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 my feeling is that the 
there's been a massive shift in the last 10 years, even right. in the last five years to that. We, I mean, there was 2007, you know, smartphones, mm. Web2, everything. You know, then there was the, oh, libraries are dying, the end of the printed book. Right. All that. But it hasn't happened. Um, you know, sure, there's a lot more online, mm. but, and, and, you know, and there's the E and there's the E-audio, but we, we're celebrating the role that we have, the privilege we have to be of service to communities. And it's not just providing access to existing information, it's giving people the tools, the technology, the time, and the belief that their stories can be community stories and a, mm. a platform for that. So we're seeing that over. We've, we've got, a, at Waimakuri, we've got a group of people with cancer writing their stories in haiku. And you know, that's going to be launched at a reading festival um, in a couple of months. Right. So that idea of time, because time, people don't have time for each other so often. Mm. You know, we're the last really free space in communities where it doesn't matter what you believe, what your faith is, what your income is, what's in your pocket, whether you have a home or not. We had a member of the community in for breakfast the other morning because he had a wee sleep in the local park. Mm. You know, so it's about flipping that. And, and we see, librarians see what's going on because we are that free space. So I, I think it's, it's, it's more universally accepted that that is our mahi now. Mm. And that's our purpose, rather than we're going to hit that KPI, we're going to get that many people through the door. And, and I say to our councillors, they might have come in to use the loo. Mm. Public toilets were closed in the local park, so they came to us. Mm, that was a great KPI month, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, where do we tick them? Yeah, it's, <laughs> On the, which it's box, the transformations, right? not the transactions. Mm. Transformation, not transactions. Yeah, there was a TED talk, Marilyn Waring talked at TEDx Christchurch a couple of right. years ago. And she got everybody in the room to put their hand up if they had breastfed. And then put your hand up if you've supported a breastfeeding mother. Have hands down. She says, congratulations. A cow is officially worth more than you. Their milk's measured. Yours isn't. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just this like, oh, wow, what do we measure? Yeah. And what's the value of it? And my team are really um, aware and so good at capturing those stories so that we turn them right. into information to make councillors realise the power of libraries, but it makes them look mm. good too because they're enabling and providing funding. So, And that's the biggest challenge for you guys, I would imagine, is just to um, amplify the stories enough that you still get the support to offer the service. That's right. But, to, yeah, cha change the narrative, what we, we, what we value, you know, and it comes back to your buzz line again. Mm. So, it's fascinating you talk about that because... I've sort of long since stopped thinking about libraries about being books because, like, I read a lot but not a lot for leisure or whatever. And you know, you go into a library and there's I don't know fifty thousand books or whatever. There's probably only five I'd ever borrow. So it's not it's not about the books. It's you know, I just love the the civic space and it, and it, it is that egalitarian thing. Anybody can walk in there and you know, as long as you're silent and whatever and you know whatever. But you know, I think you know, I look back at library and as a school and the you know the Dewey decimal cards and that was you know that was very transactional based and fines for late and stamp the book and all that you know but you know I guess to me the modern library is, is kind of anything it, it's kind of despite the books rather than because of the books yeah. and, and and I kind of it's probably hear us but it, it's I think it's kind of a blessing in disguise that the Wellington library is kind of all but condemned because the new kind of mini libraries that have popped up I think are actually much more inviting spaces and, and probably been purposely designed to be mm. that way I mean obviously not as big but 
um, you know, I think it's, yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating sort of transformation. Yeah, yeah I think they're and really, we're sorry, <coughs> they're, really, they're really intentional with their purpose rather than a one-size-fits-all cookie-cutter mm. model because communities aren't one-size-fits-all. So, you know, that idea of understand what people need and do with, not to. So, yep. I mean, think, I don't know a lot about what's um, happened to, about where they're at now for Wellington, but, um, yeah, you're hearing a lot about, you know, the sense of value from, from what is there and size doesn't always, <laughs> don't need the massive. Yeah. Well, I thought you were going to say it's probably a blessing because people then will miss it. <laughs> Almost, but you're right, the pop-ups have served it, but like I loved the Wellington Library because it was a nucleus thing, it was a, a heart of the city, it felt like, you know, and it was slap bang in the middle of the city, so it had a centre to it right there. I found it kind of cold, both literally and architecturally, like yeah. it was in the shade of the police station and everything else, and it was literally, you know, that, that yeah. area was quite cold literally, but um, it was kind of devoid of character or something mm. you know you know you go up to the top level where they had all the you know the historic New Zealand books and that was kind of awesome and it, it, it yeah. felt like it should feel like mm. but the rest of the library is sort of scattergun and but open as well and, and yeah. yeah well I'm just <coughs> trying to think then uh, Christchurch has got a new library I don't know if you spent any time down there in the last year or so but the brand new library down there and yeah, the too, yeah. the execution of that right and libraries as a design form has become really of um, well, it's become, uh, I, I suppose, uh, something that architects want to do now as well. They want to design libraries, not just schools or banks and stuff mm. like that. And there's been a lot of uh, really kind of different um, approaches to design libraries. How do you think the design of libraries impact on the service or the offering or what it is for the community? What have you seen in that space in 30 years that you've been doing that? Uh, the, the fact that people are encouraged to come in and linger is right. different. I mean, I, I saw one uh, a, a video. I used to um, be a library consultant, and there was thirty different types of seats in the library to allow for the different behaviours of the people. Okay. That would never have happened in the past. It would have been you come in, you've got your book, job done. Thanks very much. Right. Tick the door counter. Huh. That's a, probably a little bit crude, but. Now we encourage people to come in and they don't even have to connect with a collection or a staff member. Yeah. That it's actually about the space. It's actually about the personal. Well, we have people that come in and do their, biz do their business all day. We've got people who spend all day in the library because they, home's not an option. Mm. So libraries are designing for community need, not really for the librarian's need to house the physical books. Yeah, the meaning has changed, isn't mm. it, of what libraries used to be? Because mm. um, I remember my transactional thing was where my mum took us when it was raining, you know, so we could chill out there for a little bit and probably got some peace and quiet as well because there was a lot of shh going on. <laughs> <'cause you> could, <laughs> so we had to be quiet as well. Um, but now, yeah, it's very, very different. So that meaning change, I wonder if I could broaden that up to industries, like how would you say meaning has changed in both your respective industries. What means something now when it didn't 20 years ago? Brilliant, I've silenced you. It's <laughs> um, a good question. I mean, I can, I can talk to, to energy from the start if you like. I mean, mm -hmm. I think um, fundamentally how people use energy has changed. You know, it, it, go back 30, 40 years, you had 
an electricity grid, a dumb meter, and a few appliances, an oven, and a heater, and a TV, and that kind of that was life. Mm. Um, leap forward 20, 30 years, you've got an electricity grid, a smart meter, a bunch of electronics and stuff. You know, you've got a Wi-Fi to keep keep alive, which is almost a life support system for families <laughs> these days. And then you've got emerging technologies like transportation and solar PV and all that complexity. Yeah. So the, the the simple, you know, tread on your garden, send your customer a bill, collect the money and take it away and carry on is, is very much an old model. Now you've got to think about, you know, what what's the best tariff structure for a particular um, consumer, how can you bolt on products like, you know, greener technologies like electric vehicles and stuff, and that's really, the, the decarbonisation of energy has become a, become a phrase in the last five years, mm. it didn't exist before, so there's, there's much more conscious awareness of energy, its inherent value in terms of what it's used for, um, its inherent scarcity and the fact, you know, where it's generated from, less so in New Zealand because we've got a lot, a lot of renewable generation which is kind of a bit of a it's a bit unfortunate in some way because it leads to a level of complacency whereas if you know if you're like Australia where you burn dirt and it's kind of everybody knows that saving energy saves the planet it's it's less of a direct connection in people's minds in New Zealand so it's a bit of a challenge but the global shift is definitely more conscious consumption how can I how can I change the appliances I use and my behavior to minimise my my carbon footprint, if you know, if not my energy footprint, mm. at the same time as the value of energy, particularly electricity, is becoming more and more. With you know the more um, IT enabled world, you know, and if you get into electrification of transport, then obviously it becomes even more important. So yeah. there's a whole there's a whole you know sea shift, and you've got 50, 60, 70 year old, 80 year old infrastructure trying to support that. So it's yeah. yeah it's, well, the stuff that's happening in the Netherlands is fascinating, right? Which is distributed energy nodes, almost, and it's a mesh system where they, you know, you'll have a block of flats creating energy too much that it consumes and now sells to the local kind of community. In that. Um, do you see that happening in New Zealand? Obviously, it'll only happen in, in places with density. <laughs> you got yeah, I mean, it's kind of interesting because I think one of the other things that's happening globally but also in New Zealand is the density of population is increasing you know the, the cities are getting bigger and the rural parts are getting smaller and more and more people crammed into high-rise buildings and so on what I kind of wonder about that is the number of rooftops per person is shrinking so the number mm. of places for solar rooftop solar is, is kind of declining so you know those other sources of energy I, th- I think in a funny sort of way it leads you back to why the electricity grid was built in the first place, because the sources of energy are distant from where people live and consume the energy. So as much as they talk about decentralisation of energy and distributed generation alike, yeah, sure, that's that's an emerging thing. But at the same time, we've got population density increasing, and I think that might actually say, well, actually, the role for that distribution network and that, that grid, in much the same way we have roads and water pipes, probably still exist and, and may actually become even more important. Mm. I'm just trying to, th- well, I'm not going to think about it. I'm just going to ask you a question. What do you see the state of uh, the energies in New Zealand, that, that grid, that historical thing? Where do you see it going in the next 30 years then? Or 500 years? I, I mean, I think... I like well, the 500 years thing. I, 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 sort of the, the next sort of few decades, I think globally we'll find 
like many other main infrastructure that we're kind of left wanting a bit. You know, the roads are failing, the drainage systems okay. are failing, whatever. Um, and, and, and that's, you know, largely due to underinvestment and population growth faster than predict and all those sorts of things. But, but an energy that's kind of exacerbated by the liberalisation of energy markets in the late 80s, early 90s, when, you know, prior to that, centralised government was probably over-investing in, in infrastructure and the market was designed to make that investment profile much more efficient, which it did, but I suspect it overshot the mark for a decade, and that decade will be, you know, the failings of 10, 20 years' time when, you know, yeah. that underinvestment becomes apparent. Um, so I think, you know, there's, there's some short-term, you know, and I think it's cyclical, you know, you, you'll get periods where everything's great, and then you'll get periods where you start, you know, things start failing, have to be fixed on, and, you know, patch up job, and then it'll go back again. So it, it's a cyclical thing, and it's probably a 20, 30-year cycle, but... Um, so I think that's kind of where we're heading in the next probably two or three decades. To some extent, that'll be offset by distributed generation and, and you know local um, activities. But I think ultimately, the need for a grid network will become you know, as obvious as it is now you know, in 20, 20 years' time. Um, I think people are writing the grid off in much the same way they've written off, you know, written off um, paper books. Mm. They won't be here. I suspect it's the same with the electricity grid. You know, I don't need them. Everybody's going to have a solar panel, and they'll be they'll be burning their coal pots and blah blah blah. Well, yeah, they might be, but mm. I, st I still think there's there's real efficiencies in having that that shared infrastructure, and that's why it existed. That's why it was created. And I, I don't see that need disappearing. So mm. m m maybe that speaks to the 500 year picture. I think yeah, there will mm. there will still be shared infrastructure of some sort, whether it's what we see it as today. I think you know it's just efficiency for you know efficient for consumers of energy to share parts of the network or parts yeah. of the supply chain here. Fascinating. What's the biggest challenge at the moment for the old energy industry? Is it that decarbonisation, as you mentioned? Um, that's certainly a, a, a big agenda item. Um, I mm. think, um, yeah, the, there's, there's other sort of market nuances as well that make things challenging. Um, I think a lot of investments required maybe prices don't support that investment yet so you're kind of getting into that sort of territory where everybody knows that something's required but there's no way to fund it so there's, yeah, there's some challenges there and you know there's a lot of internationally there's a lot of government intervention and sort of seed change in regulation and you know government subsidies and, and schemes that are kind of infrastructure mm. schemes which again may be one of the positive outcomes of COVID is that you know the governments internationally are wanting to stimulate their economies and start investing in infrastructure again so that, that may help things but yeah certainly without without that sort of financial injection it's it's tough to do to go on that decarbonisation journey because the cost of the technology while it's falling in most mainstream applications isn't quite cheap enough yet. Because I've always thought it was a I had not thought someone told me years ago that the problem with the energy industry is just all down to distribution is where you create it you lose so much energy before you even start transporting it or when you start transporting it. There is a fly and I will get it, by the way. <laughs> um, is, uh, am I being really kind of dumb saying that or is that a problem, the distribution? is Loses so much in the distribution? So. There is losses in distribution for sure. Yeah. Um, but I think compared to, you know, if you, you've got lakes on the South Island, highly flexible, renewable sources of energy. Most people live in Auckland. Right, mm. so you've got two options: you <laughs> stick some in a wire or lose some along the way, yes. or you burn coal in Auckland. You know, what, yeah. what's the right answer? So yes, yes, there's just transmission distribution losses, but compared to the alternatives, I'm not that bad. Yeah, definitely. Mm. 
Thank you for putting me down the side. That was important in my brain because I was a piece of information I've held on to for a long time thinking, that's the problem. And I'm like, I don't know anything about energy. Why am I thinking like that? Thank you, dude. Is there anything uh, that you are really um, thinking about when it comes to the energy industry that you think, man, if someone did that, then they'd be really helping us or, you know, like where's the disruption coming from, if you use your language, that you think um, would really help or hinder? I think um, one of the things that a lot of people are sort of thinking about and investing in is getting better information about energy consumption in the house. So at the moment you've got, you've got one metre and yes, you can get half hourly or five minutes or whatever disaggregation you want, but you don't know is the electricity going to the fridge or is it going to a, a you know, heat pump or is it whatever. Mm. So starting to understand the patterns of energy consumption and being able to provide data-driven advice and evidence around, okay, you, you need to get rid of that shitty old beer fridge and mm. actually spend $1,000 to buy a new one because you'll save $1,000 over three years and help save the planet. Ooh, yeah. you know, so getting better quality data to you know get better decisions made around mm. what goes on around energy usage. Was that one of the reasons you started PowerShop? Was that they, that was something that's not <coughs> being shared, the idea of you can buy power impacts and different ways yeah, so of doing things? Our, our, I guess PowerShop was one step along that journey, if you like. So, you know, the, you, you can't get people to um, think about their energy consumption without engaging them. So you have to find some way of engaging mm -hmm. them. And, you know, I guess what we were trying to do was take electricity from being a utility-rated service to being a consumer good. And so you've you got these packages of power and then you can start bundling stuff with it. So, you know, we, we still claim to be the, you know, the first power company in the world that actually gave away free beer because you could buy $10 <laughs> worth of power and get a $10 voucher if you're a local cafe to buy beer. So, you know, so this, it was turning it into a consumer good, um, yeah. made it more flexible and, you know, you could do a whole lot of stuff with it that you couldn't do with a, a, a bill that nobody read anyway. Yeah. But also um, it was um, a way of engaging customers. So, you know, we, we, we sort of described ourselves as the first company in the world that recognised we actually had a customer experience um, <laughs> and, 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 and sort of really wanted to make that any engagement that, that a consumer had with, with PowerShip was going to be a positive one. So yeah. if you think about a traditional, um, a traditional, especially you know, 10 or 11 years ago when we started this thing, was you'd, you'd see an ad for a power company, which is a low-grade ad that could have taken the logo off and replaced it with Toyota or another mm. power company, you wouldn't notice the difference. It was, you know, a picture of a New Zealand landscape and some clouds, and it's like, oh, Lord, we're an awesome power company. <laughs> and, and so it's a pretty, pretty um, mind-numbing experience. The sign-up would probably take you three weeks in your phone, and then you send a form to your direct debit, and then you finally get signed up, and then you get a bill that's probably wrong and based on an estimate. Not, you know, everything about the whole experience was, was, was poor. And we sort of turned that all on and said, you know, let's make some really positive and engaging and mm take a position in terms of our public face and we fixated on the sign up that it was all online, we were one of the first companies in New Zealand to do online direct debit you didn't actually need to fill in a piece of paper so we, we, got, we gate crashed a, a trial on that and kind of got into that and then even the bill payment experience so you know you get power company you get a bill mm -hmm. for power you used six weeks ago that's 300 bucks whatever with PowerShop it was oh okay I'm buying power 
oh, that one's got a 5% discount, I've just saved myself five bucks. That's actually, feel, you know, I feel pleased that I've got a bargain. So even, even the payment experience, we, we tried to make as positive as you could. So it, wasn't, it didn't feel like you were paying the rates bill. It was actually, oh, I bought this and I got, a, I got a free point down at my local or I got $20 to spend at the local coin arcade or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. So it actually started creating some value along the way. So that was kind of what we were fixated on, is making all of those touch points positive, engaging. Yeah. And, then, and then on top of that, you say, okay, while you're here topping up your power, you realise you're using 36 kilowatt hours a day, maybe you should be saving some more. You know, that's about right, or that's the same as you used last year, whatever. Start mm. giving people in. So get their attention and then sort of drip feed them yeah. some stuff. Because, you know, the other uh, other parts of the world, there's a plethora of consumption. They go, oh, you know, put this meter on the wall and it tells you how much you're using. Well, so what? You know, 99% of those energy monitors never had their batteries replaced because as soon as the batteries died, they got stuck in the bottom drawer and never used it. <laughs> so, so, <clears throat> so it's actually creating an experience that has some, yeah. has some value and it closes the loop. There's a feedback there. It's, mm. oh, yeah, that. that that month cost me three hundred dollars. I've just paid it. I know how much that cost me, yeah. and, and kind of give that. And it's you know, and you can with PowerShop, you can do it as frequently as you like. So you don't need to wait six weeks from, you know, you can say, oh, this is how much mm-hmm. I spent last week. This is how much, you know, and actually get that much more. Time and even there. that little graph that you get in the emails, because I'm a customer, mm. sorry. But uh, I like the little graph that you see, like, oh, more or less yeah. from last week, but then you've got an idea of, oh, yeah, I was away for that week, that's why it's really low, and that's obviously just my fridge and <laughs> doing its job, <laughs> or my Wi-Fi, because I forgot to turn it off and stuff. So it's uncovering the unseen, I suppose, what yeah. used to be there and historical, just like, pay us for that, please. You're like, yeah. all right. Yeah, exactly. Humanising it almost. Yeah. That's, that customer experience, does that kind of bring... Kind of any bells for the library services? Yeah. yeah. The user experience. User experience, yeah. you call it. Right. Yeah. So Are they customers or users or, or what, what? I, by the way? I personally really challenge with customer. Okay. Because right. so there's so most of the times when you come into library to pay anything, you're paying a fine. Right, yes. So I mean Auckland Libraries have announced today they've gone fines for fine free. Why Makariri libraries are going fines free? There's so many library networks around New Zealand going fines free. So, so what does that mean? You so won't get fined? You have life happen and your book doesn't, your item doesn't come back on time. Right. We get that. That's life. Yeah. Bring it, bring so it that, back. Does that mean free books for the community? Just take them out and never, forget, never well, give them you know, back? That, that's often the <laughs> argument and that's what some of the councillors have said. And, you mm. know, there's been, those of us who have been on that pursuit of being a fines free Library service have had their argument with there's a lot of research on it and it just doesn't happen. Most of the time it doesn't happen. You'll get the odd person that'll go, how long can I hold on to this? Well, it gets to a certain point Well, then your card's blocked because actually it's about yep. recycling and reusing yep. the community curated collection for the community. So if you're going to hold on to it, at a certain point we'll go, bring it back or just hold your borrowing until then. So mm. customer implies that there's money which okay. doesn't fit with the inclusive, open-to-all um, culture that we're trying to, to, to bring on board. I mean, libraries, most libraries have small income targets, pub, most mm. public libraries, um, and you can generate that revenue through items that might be the, the latest, latest. so you might have the, the latest Lee Child book and you want it, and it's in a bookshop, but you want it right now. You could get it for $4.20 from us for a week. Mm. Bang. Blitz it, done, bring it back. That's revenue. And and don't really struggle with that idea of selling a product that's a premium product, but actually most of our items, most of our things should be free. Right. So you're a user. I mean, user's got some funny connotations oh, I like too. It. So yeah. I, 
encourage my team when we're writing reports to talk about users, mm. community, not a customer because we're trying to move away from that idea. It's a publicly funded service and space. So mm. my personal principles say you shouldn't have to be a customer. You've already paid for it once. Mm. And, it, and it's actually a right. Of course, yeah. So, you know, freedom of access to information is a right. So, and, you know, whether that's recreational, there's so much research around the power of reading for pleasure mm. to, to, to grow empathy, to, to shift people from places where life's put them, socioeconomic conditions, mm. to move people through um, to better places because of reading for pleasure and what that does to the brain. So, yeah, I don't think you should have to be a customer. I think you're a user or a... I like that, yeah. A borrower. Borrower could be... Mm. So when you said about some, uh, some libraries have income targets, is it they only make income through fines then, I would imagine? Fines. Or hireage of spaces? Yeah, hiring you know? spaces, um, programmes and events. Okay, um, of course, yeah. But it, it depends on your council. It depends on who, right. who, you, you know, who you're accounting or accountable to. But I think as soon as you put a price tag on something that's in a community space, you're automatically going to exclude people who may feel like now the library is a place for them, but 20, 30, 40 years ago, them or their families might not have because of the, the connotations associated with a library. Mm. You know, it came with some academia. Yeah. You know, you think back to where the origins of libraries and what they were set up for. Mm -hmm. um, even when I started in libraries, Christchurch, Christchurch City Libraries, I was 13, and they used to have an S on the date stamp um, piece of paper inside the book. And S was for serious fiction. Okay, you didn't pay yeah. for that, but P, P you paid for, and P star, well, you were getting really trashy then, you paid twice as much. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just that idea that we pass judgment on what, on what yeah. people are reading, and we put a price tag on it, which turns you into a consumer or a customer. But mm. actually, you're a borrower or you're a library user. So, okay. yeah, so we're really lucky we don't have big income targets. And we can offer services like you know, a metro card, the bus cards. You know, we get a tiny little commission for each one of those you do. So, hey, it's a service to the community, yeah. and you just clip a bit of that ticket. So, I'd rather that and perhaps you know, a book bag that's actually something usable. Someone's not going to have a throwaway bag. We mm. have a bag with a branding object and you have a little exactly. bit of cost recovery on there rather than, and that's a, a, a value-add thing. But yeah. there's no discrimination or bias showing around pr the privilege of money for a mm. service or an item or using a space. I think that's where, you know, someone like a power shop, for example, and look at that customer experience and constant... I suppose relationship building with email types and the, and the messaging and everything else. Public service, I'm not saying that you don't do this, but public services like libraries can learn from that mm. drip, that constant just, you know, touch, um, that touch point with yeah. the customer or user. Yeah. Um, that delights and surprises and, you know, kind of just tenderly yeah. keeps you in touch with that. I, I think that's what libraries lack a little bit of. It's funny you say it because we've just tried it this week. Oh, right. Yeah, Tell me so about we've that. got um, two authors coming on Friday night. Okay. And local authors. And we've just, we've got this e blast option through our, one of our product, one of our platforms. Send it out. Man, we've, we're on 50 bookings already. We're right. capped at 60. And, right. and we're getting people to say where they, so it's the e blast or Facebook. Mm. So, you know, that idea of talking to our users, talking to our community. 
um, about things that they're interested in. So we need to get more targeted because at the moment it's just everybody got that. Right. But we need to refine that. You know, what sort of things are you interested in? And we're thinking today, just throwing some ideas around with the team. Well, perhaps we could have a subscription for a year. You, you know, you get all those notifications, you get first dibs, and that could be a mm. sort of like a premium type service that a little bit of revenue could come from. But you're providing something. Yeah. Art galleries also, do that, right? Yeah. Friends of and yeah, you know, yeah, exclusive. Yeah. Things. And then you've got this publicly funded space that's open to do more with at night. So you're mm -hmm. actually extending the, you know, the value, the return on that investment to the community in a wider way. But the more we can get the community doing that for the community, I just think it builds on that idea that we're a public platform of space. Yeah. How do you want to use us? So tell us about uh, the uh, library that you run, because it's... A the district, bit newer. so about 40 minutes oh, yes. of Christchurch. Yeah, sorry, the one so, that I visited was new. And, yeah, and so we've them, got so. Kaiapoi, Rangiora and Oxford, and then our fourth gotcha. digital branch, we call it. Yeah, gotcha. so North Canterbury was really hammered in the earthquakes, especially mm. 2010. So we've, um, we've got two libraries that have been built since then. Yeah. Ruatanefa Kaiapoi was on the river and came down to, according to what needed to come down. So um, it's a new purpose-built space with a gallery and a museum and a council service centre and mm. yeah, we are really trying to just change the concept that you have to read a book to come in, mm. but you can read a book to come in, yeah. And what's the differences uh, between different libraries and different users and is it, I suppose like, you know, look at Christchurch Library mm -hmm. and then compared to the one of the ones that you were describing, mm. way out in the sticks, who so is very small and mm. it's kind of only open part-time, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so how do you manage that, those types of really big, big entities versus small community? I think it's talking to your community right. and finding out what they want, because they might not want what's, what's in town, or they might want to taste right. teasers of different things. Okay. You know, it's, it's getting the right people and those really small, small, small services, small spaces. Um, but you know, what, who, who in the community can do for the community in the library space in those small spaces? Right. So you know, yeah. that idea that you don't have the massive team or the massive community, but the community can do for each other within the space that, you know, mm. just going back to, I sound like a broken record, but you know, who can facilitate what? Mm. Um, yeah, and, that, and just that feeling that, it, it's, that everybody feels they belong I think that's a key thing. And Tauranga and the City Library, they've, they've got that. Because you know, you've got your layers and you've got your, you've got your narrative as you move through the floors. And people are invited to sit and be mm. because of the range of furniture, because of the range of spaces. Um, and it's a very eclectic community who use, who use that library. Sure. Um, so I think belonging is a really, uh, yeah, yeah, it's something we're really working on. Yeah, it's a, it's a charged word, right? Belonging, because mm. uh, it comes with that tribal ethic or branding or, or some other things. But mm. actually, it's quite a graceful word. Mm. You know, how do we create belonging in that physical space, but also to the service? I heard a wonderful speaker a few years ago who who said, "How do I know that what I feel and what I believe is valued by you? How do you show that in your walls and your language and your signage, your collections?" You know, so that belonging, and that might just be, there's a seat with arms, so if I sit down, I know I can get up again. That might just okay. be, 
that I've been doing some work with Dementia Canterbury and we're looking at the what our toilets are like for people who are living with dementia. And that could be as simple as making sure a toilet seat is not white and your system's white and your walls, you know, that I can come in here and I know I can safely use the toilet. Yeah. Um, the door can be held open if I'm on my walker and not get stuck. Happened a few weeks ago. Oh, okay. Um, you know, th those sorts of things. I can find a space where I can sit safely to study and I'm not going to be observed because to do that at home would not be appropriate. Mm. You know, so belonging, yeah. And then the collections enable curiosity, they, learning, play, all of those things, not just a set purpose. You know, hey, God, I'm studying this, I need a book on. How can we challenge also because we're quite a conservative community so I think it's important to challenge as well Well I was going to ask you about belonging in terms of your staff as well because that was all user focus and that's mm. great because that's your brain and that's how it works you're always front facing but what about the culture of you know, bringing teams together or inheriting teams and other things Like, what, how do you go about creating a culture of belonging for your staff as well is that important Is that? I think it's really important Right. You know, the investment in, in a new staff member to onboard them, I mean, mm. if we're talking HR speak, um, you know, it's huge to get them up to stage where they actually s feel like their ideas can be delivered. So, How do you do that? Uh, I like to chat a lot, <laughs> find out about people. Yeah? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, what spins your wheels? What do you mm. love? What did you love about your last job? What did you hate? Right. What could you do if you were me? You know, if, mm. what would you bring in? Yeah, and that, okay, if you're sitting in my office, what would you do? Those sorts of questions. Yeah. Those are good questions. Yeah. Um, and I think it's the power of the interview too. So we've just onboarded some really cool people. We had this crazy game where they had to, they had a yellow foam banana or they had a series of crayons and they matched to a sheet that was like a code. Okay. And when they picked it up, that was a question. But we answered it, the interview panel answered it first, and then we gave it to them, so it was a bit of an icebreaker. Oh my gosh, it was such a revelation, <laughs> such a revelation. And several of the people who we interviewed said that was the best interview I've ever had. Right. Because <laughs> it was fun. Yeah. So, you know, I think also, and I learned this from you, this playfulness. Yeah. You know, it doesn't have to be deadly serious. I mean, libraries, there's that perception that we're all very shush and very serious. Mm -hmm. But, you know, what activates people in the best way? Mm -hmm. So, I love yeah. that. Thank you. It's the same for you, Ari, when you were kind of building your businesses and other things. Like, how do you go about creating a team that belongs together and also belongs to the culture and the brand? And everything? I mean, I think it's it, it is about that that self worth, and it's like knowing that you can make a difference. So it's about you know empowerment in a, in a way that's actually authentic. That you know that um, it's you know the opposite of command and control. You know, it's like let's let's collaboratively work on where we're going as an organisation, what's the strategy, what, you know, what are we trying to achieve. Once you've got that, just let people free to kind of navigate their own way towards that and they won't always get it right. And that's kind of the mentoring and coaching thing that, okay, mm -hmm. that, was, that wasn't such a bright idea, but we'll turn you that way and we're, we're, we're good again. And it, it's more that sort of approach rather than, you know, oh, I've got an idea, I'm the boss, therefore that must be a good idea and <laughs> go and do that for me. It's gotcha. not, it's, yeah, it's more, okay, let's, you know, I'm the, I'm the boss and I represent the shareholders' interest and this is what we want to achieve, but let's collectively work out how to get there. Mm. But that is rare, right? In leadership. Um, not as rare as it used to be, 
Um, you know, a lot of people are starting to understand the more softer skill side of leadership a lot more. And we probably all of us around the table know people who are brilliant at that softer approach to leadership compared to probably also know some leaders who are, don't do that. Yeah. They're there to my way to the highway type thing. And I suppose it's, it's not one size fits all, right? And uh, no, you, no, yeah, I think I, th I think same for employees too. Some some people actually like to be told what to do. So yeah. you turn up and say, just go and do that, and, and they've got no idea where to start. Whereas others, you know, you, you can say, look, I, I just I just want to achieve this, and then three yeah. weeks later they pop up and it's done. Others are like, three weeks later it's like, oh, what'd you ask me to do again? You know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, so it, it's it's a personality thing as well. And you know, I I heard a, a good sort of description on a, on a trip to the states a few years back. You know, the, the guy said to me, look. All businesses have kind of got a number of phases of evolution, but he broke it down to three. He said, "You know, you've got you've got your first stage when you're a genuine startup, and that's that's where you need your renegades who just, you know, don't really care for rules and just want to, you know, do what they want to do. Um, and they're good to a point, but you, they get to a scale and a complexity where that doesn't work anymore. Right. Then you need your architects who start putting a bit of structure around things and nice. you know start tidying things up and you know get it into a good shape that's you know scalable and sustainable and those sorts of things." And then you get to this final stage, which is about caretaking. So you've got a business that's maturing. You just need to crank the handle and you know fine tune things and you know improve margins and all that sort of stuff. That's more incremental. And he said, your your, your personality will put you in one of those others, you know, one mm -hmm. or other. And he said, if you're a renegade, you can probably survive a little bit into the architect stage, but there's no you yeah. Haven't got a shit job doing that, and vice versa. If you're if you're a person that's takes something existing, just fine tune it and crank the handle and operational. There's no way you're going to be sort of rule busting and you know breaking down the walls and doing stuff. So it, it kind of made sense to me that you know so there's um, you know there is every every organisation has its life cycle and mm -hmm. has its structure, its complexity, its scale, all those sorts of other things that does lend itself to different people. And you know, as a founder of a business, you kind of, first, you know, passion, oh, I'm going to be here forever, this is awesome, it's my thing, I've created it, it's awesome. <laughs> and you get to the point, oh, fuck, I'm just cranking the handle again. Yeah. <laughs> okay. When did you realise that in the process? Because that takes some self-reflection <coughs> to understand that you're good at the first, maybe half of the second, but you need to then hand it over to someone. Yeah, so we, we, I was kind of lucky, I had the opportunity to kind of reinvent so we, we split the organisation into two. So yeah. PowerShop became, well, it was, it was partly my frustration, but partly as an organisation we'd become schizophrenic, which was probably a reflection of my frustration that we didn't know, you know, we were, were an electricity retailer for New Zealanders or we were a software company for the world. And it's kind of trying to find a common aligning purpose around that was, was almost impossible. So we made the decision, let's not fight it, let's split it into two. So we carved off PowerShop New Zealand, which then became more of a caretaking operational type function and they, they improved the performance of the business quite a lot yep. just by fine tuning stuff. And then we created Flux Federation whose role was to sell software around the world and, and kind of you know had a, had a much um, a much tighter focus and much renewed purpose that kind of let, bred some life back into that. So that was, yeah. yeah, so it was kind of, I had the opportunity to reinvent myself without without actually having to fire myself, you know, it was kind of, <laughs> <laughs> which, is, which is a good thing, yeah. Yeah, it's unique as well, not a lot of people I've had that experience, but then uh, uh, Flux Federation, uh, sorry, found Federation or Foundation. Yep. Thank you. I'm, I always think of the Starship, um, <laughs> you know, Star Trek and the United was it? Yeah, planets of the Federation of the Council. Anyway, sorry, I'm nerding out now. <laughs> you stepped on in 2019 from that, right? So is that still existing? Like yep. What's happened? Yep, right. Existing. So then, yep. then what attracted you back into 
or did you were you literally going? Oh, I'm stepping down for that so I can take over Octopus. No, so the, the reason I left really was the nature of that. Well, the priorities of that business and the direction of that business I'd kind of lost control of, and what happened was so historically PowerShop and then Flux had they were always owned by Meridian, yeah. and we had this reasonably good linear relationship. We had Meridian as a shareholder. We had an independent board that made sure that we behaved ourselves within limits and then we kind of had the management team doing what we wanted to do but had adult supervision if you like yeah, and that, yeah. that worked for quite a while um, and then 2000, late 2017-2018 Meridian decided they'd become a customer of Flux as well so migrate all their customers onto the Flux platform wow. which meant that the, the previously linear quite functional relationship became to people around here trying to do this and mm. you know oh no you're not going to sell to Singapore you need to fix the thing and, and you know because it's not working in New Zealand kind of the priorities started drifting and it was yeah. you know it, I I sort of described you know I need to get out before I turn into a grumpy old man you know because kind of, it was <laughs> you know, not not getting my own way and and to be fair it wasn't it wasn't the wrong thing for Meridian to do. It's just not what I wanted to do or what we as a management team wanted to do. Yeah. So rather than fight it, I thought it's time to... Yeah, yeah. tag team out. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I left and kind of went out on my own and um, got together with a couple of former colleagues and we, we created a, a product, energy-related product of our own. Yeah. And we were doing consultancy, um, did a bit of work in Australia actually just to try and fund that. And then COVID came, we weren't getting on a plane, so we weren't we weren't consulting in Australia and we weren't selling our product. So we kind of started talking with Octopus and then we kind of ended up joining forces with them. So it was kind of a, cool. an accident of history. But um, but the, the thing that appealed to us and, you know, and, and me as well is that my, my colleagues was, it was kind of like Flux, but without the constraints of a shareholder who had a, a much bigger business you know they were very very much focused on what they were doing and growing that so it was mm. kind of a you know the same same sort of business but with a much better focus and a much more fun but much better funded growth pathway so it was how, how do you manage though the idea that you're now a competitor in theory to something you founded um, I think it's you, you just need to move on. You know, right, so, you yeah, separate yeah, it. Yeah. And, you know, we, we we talked as a manager. So a number of the people that are working with me now uh, have been involved in PowerShop or Flux over the years. And mm. you know, the sort of the day one conversation was, we're not here to create PowerShop 2.0. We're here to create Octopus 1.0. Let's get on with it. Right. Because yeah. that must be un- again not that unique, but uh, different for most founders. They never then go on and do something very similar, but now are in a little bit of competition, but. I suppose different stages, right, and different yeah, and setup. And as an MD rather than a founder now, it's different again. Yeah, um, different challenges. Yeah, it is. But it's it's also a good opportunity to kind of, you know, we we started PowerShop, you know, back in two thousand and eight, you know, twelve mm. thirteen years ago. The world's moved on a lot, so there's, yeah. a, there's we've learned a lot in that decade. But also the world's changed a lot, so it's an opportunity to kind of do it better this time around. You know, yeah. all the things you did wrong last time, learn from them and, and do better. So yeah, so there's there's some. Um, you know, the, the, I guess there's a sense of loss of what you left behind, but there's also a sense yeah. of excitement about what you know about actually. Okay, we, we learned a whole lot of stuff there. Let's not do that again, or let's do that more, or whatever. <laughs> and so it actually, you know, it, it kind of it's yeah gives you a new, a new lease of life. Mm. To, yeah. I was going to ask you what, um, which is one of my favourite questions to ask people: What does success look like? Especially when I'm working with clients who want to do stuff. So, what does success look like? <laughs> I can't do that. But what does success look like for you when it comes to like your MD role for Octopus? Yeah, so you got a definite idea. Um, a, a definite, but not very specific idea. I swear yeah. to describe it. Um, the 
there's a number of constraints operating in the New Zealand market. Um, you know, we don't own generation. We don't have readily access, you know, guaranteed access to wholesale energy and stuff. So, getting to scale without some other things is is, is challenging. So, mm. to us, you know, the, the the octopus agenda globally is, is accelerating decarbonisation. So, within the constraints of the New Zealand market, how can we contribute to that? So, it, to me, it's about um, being a different sort of retailer so it's it's a bit like the library the library used to be about books but now it's about broader things and it's about people experience and, and a whole range of other things so for us it's about not just being an electricity company that sells electricity through a meter mm. it's about how can we how can we help our customers um, change their behavior change the, the things they invest in to actually accelerate that decarbonization so it's it, in, a, in a funny sort of way it's um, the constraints help us build out a, a different model and and fortunately Octopus, um, have, uh, they're doing a whole lot of other outside of retail in the UK as well. So they've got um, investments in electric vehicles, both in terms of they have a they sell electric vehicles. They have charging networks, have a bunch of products that sit around that. So they've got some stuff from that. They bought a, a company that has got some behind the meter technology um, for demand response programs, and they've got other investments on, in the, on the go as well. So there's there's a lot we can just take from there and repackage and, and build out a, a proposition. Mm. In so we've got all the building blocks really. It's just fitting them into the New Zealand thing. So success to us looks like being a successful organisation as an electricity retailer, but it's a different retailer. It's not just about electricity through the meter. Yeah. And it must be fascinating and aligned. Um, to a, a much bigger organisation elsewhere, which you can steal from <laughs> in yeah, terms yeah, of the yeah, elements. Yeah. Going, oh, like a, almost like a banquet, and going, yeah, that bit, that bit, that bit will definitely work in New yeah, Zealand. but hopefully give back too. I mean, it's um, right. You yeah. know, New Zealand. We've had smart meters in the ground for ten years. Mm. UK's only, I don't know, maybe halfway through their rollout program. Mm. Germany don't have any. Surprisingly enough, Tokyo don't have any. So there's there's um, there's a, a some massive markets in the world that octopus are going into that don't yet have smart meters but will one day so learning you know what are the what are the good and bad aspects from from a technical yeah. perspective but also and more importantly from a customer proposition perspective you know how, how can you use that technology to help customers so learning from what we're already doing in new zealand but will continue to do in new zealand and feeding that back up to those much bigger markets so where would you put new zealand on, on like a chart of kind of um global countries doing well when it comes to new adoption of energy approaches? We're certainly ahead of a lot of the world in terms of innovation. You know, if you look at, um, it, it's kind of weird, if you look at the number of electricity billing systems that have come out of New Zealand, you've got Agility, Gendrak, Flux, they're all um, born out of New Zealand and, and, and other, other companies on the other sides of the world are starting to catch up to particularly Flux, which was the newer of those those platforms. Um, so we've kind of led the way in that sense. Smart meter technology, you know, it's been in the ground here 10 years. Um, and that comes from, I think, a couple of things. One is um, New Zealanders generally have a, have a much greater sen- sense of curiosity and, and want to innovate, and that's kind of just, you know, it's that kind of number eight wire mentality, yep. um, which is good and bad. But um, but there is there's a natural sort of, Curiosity to do things better, and combined with a smaller market. Whereas if you, know, if you fuck it up, it's not it's not the yeah. end of the world. But if you if you piss five million customers off, you've got some big operational headaches. Sure, to yeah. So so doing stuff in New Zealand is much is much easier. And 
as a result of that, the companies and the people you deal with are much less risk averse. So, yeah. you know, some of the things you do in New Zealand, other companies would just say, "No, nah, I'm not. I'm not even going there." Yeah. You know, so so this this you know the the mentality of both you know businesses, but also customers, and and the sort of tolerance to change. Mm. Fascinating. What about libraries in terms of another table for libraries in terms of New Zealand? Where are we in in uh, in relation to other countries when it comes to how good or bad our library system is or service? Was that too? No, I think um, you could look at that with lots of lenses. So right. you could look okay. at that from a technology perspective. You could mm -hmm. look at that from a space perspective. You could look at that from access to information and New Zealand's high transparency rating of trust with government, but also the ripple effect of that. Then you could put a cultural lens on that and look at the way library, the, the library sector um, is acknowledging the role of biculturalism in mm. New Zealand. Um, you could also look at it, you know, once upon a time you came into the library because you were a certain type of person who could use it. Now, I think, and particularly so since COVID, um, we're really aware of all those people that what they don't have. So we're, you know, mental health, social isolation, digital exclusion, mm. all of those things are, are Library 101. They're not an add-on. They're, they're an integral part of our reason for being our why and supporting people in those spaces. So I think we do a really good job, but I'm, I'm not saying New Zealand is better because there's it's, it's almost just like a philosophy of libraries now and right. there's some amazing things happening in so many different libraries I mean around the world if you look at so IFLA the International Federation of Library Associations they've got a, a library map and they map the way that libraries are supporting the sustainable development goals oh wow so okay. there's 17 yeah. SDGs and then different libraries from you know little Russian states to big libraries in America to Auckland libraries offering period poverty DIY classes for homeless people wow. to Waimakariri libraries having a seed exchange um, for people to, and we're not unique in that, lots of libraries mm. are doing that, to, um, we recently had a stash swap, so bring in your old craft buttons, ribbons, everything. Right, that was and a completely swap. different thing in my head about stashes. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> I've got this. Both of you are really interested all of a sudden. Um, so it's, it, it's that idea of you know what, what a library's doing and yeah. how are we supporting bigger goals. I mean, IFLA presented at the UN the power and the role of libraries to support the sustainable development goals. If you're looking at gender equity and education and you know, we want to know about the health of the land above, health of the under the water, all of that. You know, we are the ultimate in the recite and sustainability because you don't have to buy a book; you can just borrow a book. You know, right, libraries yeah. are lending cake tins. There's, there's tie breeze for that interview. Come and borrow a tie. Mm. There's power tools, all that sort of stuff. So, and there's the social compassion, kindness as well. You know, so I just I would hate to say. New Zealand libraries are It was above, an unfair question. Yeah, but I just think libraries as a community are doing some yeah. really powerful things that you can't put a tangible, you can't put a price on it. They're sort of, they, they're really, yeah. you know, they have mixed value, but they're all social return on investment, mm. but you can't quantify that. Mm. Um, 
What about the role of Leanza here? Because you've been a, a president, uh, Mom. Um, <laughs> so do you want to explain what Leanza is and what your role was? Um, so it's the Library and Information Association of New Zealand Aotearoa. Okay. So it's the peak body representing New Zealand's libraries, librarians. We have a, um, a, a, a working relationship partnership with Tarapa Whakahau, which is the um, peak body for representing Māori library and information GLAM workers. Okay. So GLAM galleries, libraries, archives, museums, and um, iwi, GLAM E. So, oh, there's a new one. There's so an eye on the from Whakahau, that's one thing that... That's a um, nice thing. ...one of their tumuaki was, was telling me. So Because, you know, we've got a very Eurocentric lens on how you access information, but yeah. if you break that down to different cultures... You know, do you tell yeah, even the idea of a library, right, was a building with thing, but a library can be, and one of my favourite things over the last few years is book out a person in a yeah. library. You know, unless you in some cases yeah. go and borrow a person and they tell you stories about yeah. them and what they've experienced. And they are, in a sense, the book. Yeah. yeah. We did that at Alianza conference recently, so all the people who have been around in libraries and they're the legends, they carry some of the institutional knowledge, the experiences. They've, they've been the disruptors, they've been really intelligently disobedient. Mm. They've broken rules to get us where we are. And they've aligned up with all the, the first timers. <laughs> and over tea, it was like speed date moving along. That's lovely. It was just so powerful. To, yeah. I mean, so, some of those, these people, the mm. New Zealand libraries owe where they are now. Yeah. to some very, very um, prominent, passionate, loyal, articulate mm. activists. And you were a president for one year, but you have, in Leander, as I understand it, like a beginning year. Yeah, and an era and a, spare. <laughs> yeah, it's like, you don't yeah. want to talk about that system? I, I just find it fascinating, because I've never heard about that before. It, it, I think it just um, it supports um, the, the growth of the person, yeah. It supports, it, it sustains it. If you've got a three-prong approach, yeah. um, you've always got somebody else if life happens. Because so you're doing three, this free. What's the approach? So um, you, you've, you, your president is the person who traditionally would front it in different events. But what we moved it to was, look, if you've got an event in Christchurch, have the president-elect there. Why fly someone down there when actually we're three people advocating for the same organisation, singing from the same song sheet, saying the same message? So um, COVID sort of flipped everything on its head around that. So the um, new president coming in will be from Christchurch and the president-elect is just elections have finished, so yet to be announced. Right. And going out, um, Anahira Morahu. So she was also she's also associated with Tropa Fokaho. So there's been this incredible bicultural, diverse thinking that's been incredibly educational as we challenge ourselves on our own thinking. Yeah. Yeah. But that idea of having a president elect who's not in the role yet, but a president but then also what's the third one? The president past yeah, or this the year. The year of spear. Depending you, on how you Yeah, and you're all around. kind of just like passing the banner, almost yeah. moving the pieces which is just it a great it never used to be like that but it sort of just morphed into that we could have mm. just the combinations of people makes sense yeah, yeah i think it's it's great so it's, it's great mm. you just learn and i was so blessed with amazing woman either side right yeah and you're finished the president pass now yeah yeah this is my last my first free year 
That's in true. 10 years. Because <laughs> I was on right. council as well. So, yeah. Oh, right. Yes, yeah. of course. So I'm totally spear. You would, yeah, token as well, <laughs> sticking around. What is Lianza kind of the... Um, kind of meant to you and what what does it continue to do and stuff and it, it's been incredibly powerful it's the um the connections and the sharing of knowledge and the people and and i was involved at a time when new zealand was bidding for the world library congress yeah. so you know this is this was so ifla what i, I right. talked about before they um, have had an annual conference different places around the world and it's quite an honor to to host it, but it's also an amazing showcase for your country. Mm. So we were we were bidding. We we got it. There was a small team of us went to Poland to pitch our pitch our bid, and you know we had different roles. And mine was woo, <laughs> win others over over. Win others over. <laughs> Basically schmooze. Ooh, that, yeah, you yeah. good and, at that. And then when was this? Poland, two thousand and two thousand and sixteen. It might have been. Right. Yeah, and then or seventeen, and then um, KL was we got it. And we had um, Jacinda Ardern on maternity leave do a little webinar, a little, a little video interview for mm-hmm. us that was announced in Kuala Lumpur. And you would have thought that you two were on stage. The way yeah. that the crowd <laughs> just went nuts. You couldn't even hear what she was saying. People wow, were just no like way. fangirling, fanboying out over her. It was incredible. We were all there crying and singing Tu Te Mai. And it was mm. amazing. And then... Um, a construction company in Auckland was not able to um, complete the Sky Tower, Sky City extension in time. So um, we lost it and uh, then we got it back again. And I didn't know we got it back again. Um, co- uh, we, we had delays and re-offers. Oh, yes. And then, uh, yeah, the fire. Fire, yeah. Yeah, so we know. gave up before the locusts came, really. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and COVID, right? Oh, so it's like yeah. fire, pandemic, and all yeah. that stuff. But we know we can do it. Right. Will it be another thing that uh, Leanza will bid on in the future? I don't know. Or will it I, even exist in the future? The, the, this global conferences. What's thing, the future right? of a global conference mm. in the foreseeable future? Who's going to take that punt? I mean, we're talking massive amounts of money. Yeah. We had you know, New Zealand tourism behind us. Yeah. We had the uh, Tapuna Foundation. We had Air New Zealand behind us. How many does it attract to attend? Oh, you can get four or five thousand. Yeah, more than that on a really good year. Yeah. Yeah. And that's global librarians global. coming together to go. Yeah. Libraries and this information. Yeah. Yeah. Libraries yeah. Libraries. yeah. So okay. powerful, amazing. The room is just. So vibrant and I love nerds geek. like you. Yeah, geeking out in a good way. You yeah, know? yeah, definitely. Okay, so no, it's we'll see. Who knows? You can do a lot online, but you know, it's just that mm. being in person, isn't it? To yeah. really sit and marinate on those ideas and share those stories and build on those relationships. Mm. Yeah, and still like an artist. Definitely. Go, ooh, you're doing that. You know, just write that down. I didn't you think about that. You did that. That's what we all should do, right? That's, that's what yeah. Picasso said, I think. Yeah. Feel like an artist. Um, <laughs> so we should follow it. You mentioned COVID uh, earlier, and um, how has COVID affected both you, your library, and the library services in New Zealand? Look, if I'm saying this in a very respectful way, I think it's given us the shake up that we needed to um, be brave enough to try new things without prototyping, just to mm-hmm. go from an idea and not iterate and just blast it out as a service. Um, that's, that side's been really great. Um, and 
thinking about disrupting council expectation of process. It's been kind of a gift as well, because we were able to just go for it. We were one of the, I think it was the first three libraries in New Zealand to be offering a service at level three. So um, that was my leadership team and I, we wrote a proposal that went to the management team, that went to the CDHB, that got the chief medical officer to sign off on, wow. because we had bubbles of staff working with a half hour window to cross over with named toilets, with um, collect, curating book bags. Mm. So, you know, we had we would had an, had an inkling the week before, like probably all of New Zealand did, that we were moving. Yeah. Um, so we had this idea for a service. The Monday that we were told you're going home, we were throwing around ideas in the workroom for a service. So my book bag was the name that came out of it. And over locked over level four, the team curated, gathered, got a web, web page um, form. So when we're allowed back in the building with CDHB approval in these really tight bubbles, so people couldn't move from one library to another, they had to stay in that bubble. Um, and gloves and hand sanitizer and masks and all of, you know, it was the full kit and caboodle. We were making book bags that then the aquatic staff, because the pools weren't open, were outside on their own, 15 minutes time slots for people to come and collect their bags at the two metre social distancing. So it flipped us on the head and now it's a service. We've actually seen a drop in numbers, people coming in, which okay. could be you know, related to a whole lot of variables. But the fact that someone can come in and grab a paper bag, chuck it on the self-issue machine, it issues a swagger box and out you go. Just a self-selected book of bags or is it also yeah, genreized? Genreified. So you say right. what you're wanting. Um, and right. it's sitting there, or you look at what's there, or you can say what you're wanting, or you could say, I want a collection of World War II biographies, please, and then somebody will do that as well. Huh. Yeah, our customer service online yeah. changed, our, what's our user experience, and we assume that people are digitally competent and digitally mm -hmm. savvy, but we had a mobile setup where we could ring and talk people through getting a pin on your library card. How do you download a talking book? How do you download an e-book? Mm. And then we were given training around how to pick up some of those uh, signs that people were really quite socially isolated. And we had the time to spend time on the phone. Um, and then from that we had, once we were allowed to move more freely, home deliveries to people. The library team just doing it in their own cars. Um, that's above Library and beyond, right? Yeah. Unpacking groceries at the supermarket for people at home, and you'd hear on the phone often there was a, a link there, so putting them in touch with a social service. Mm. I think it's really raised our profile, and it's we've been seen again for the primary branding object of the people, not the product. Yeah. So I remember you telling me a story about uh, one of your librarians delivering to a, a lady who had a specific uh, book taste in mind. If you can recall, more of the racier type. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, let's just say they can often say, "Don't worry about my age. I like, I like, I like a bit of raunch." <laughs> bag full of Australian outback romances yeah. to you. Thank you very much, dear. And that's a whole section in their library. Yeah. It's like a whole row. Most popular genre Is in Taipei, right? apparently. Yeah. Who ah, yeah. know? <laughs> that's amazing. That, you know that. That was a service that was spun out of obviously the pandemic mm. that now still exists, but 
also the overlapping of other things that you would have to respond to and it's yeah it's kind of illustrates why librarians and the library service as a whole is just so rich yeah and it's really adaptive and reactive yeah. i mean yeah. only probably four of my team have a work phone but over level four and level three we managed to film 200 224 220 videos at home reading stories oh, wow. telling stories doing puppet plays doing rhyme so pressure of the libraries managed to get copyright licensing to change the rules because you the mm. copyright act you cannot tell a story if it's going to be converted into a digital format but if it's analog storytelling in the library that's okay so gotcha. the copyright rules had to be really reactively really really quickly changed and they were for level four and then um, sector pressure maintained those waivers at level three and at level two but when we were back at level one all of that amazing content had to be deleted. Oh, no way. Huh. But now, not exclusive to Waimakariri, librarians are creating their own story times through their own original stories, their own puppet plays, their own right. rhyme, and filming it and putting them on Facebook. So or going for that 150 years, whatever thing, and finding... Some, yep. You know. There's so many, so many things that are, have come out of that... Okay, reaction to people being at home in the social, social isolation. But, I mean, if something has to change, I mean, gosh, jolly copyright rules. Because it just, it's mm -hmm. advocacy, it's product, it's marketing for the, yeah. the publisher, the book. But, yeah, so that was amazing. Little, little wee Wymac doing that yeah. many. So, Thank you. Yeah. What about you, Ari, in terms of COVID and what it meant for what you were doing? It was kind of interesting. Um, it actually changed the way people work quite dramatically. Um, you know, that having having people based in, in Wellington working on a Melbourne project you wouldn't have thought of a year ago it just doesn't happen. You know, mm. you'd, you'd recruit local people and you'd get on with life or you'd drop your own people in or whatever. So that just the whole way that that business operated was was permanently changed, I think. You know, one, one, one of the good examples of that is um, Octopus in the UK, they've got about 2 million customers, so they're constantly recruiting for energy specialists, people to answer customer service inquiries and like. So they, they, they recruit you know, 10 or 15 a week or whatever. So it's a right. perpetual process, you know, both for scaling and, and people are leaving and so on. Um, and the COVID hit and the need didn't go away. People were still using electricity and whatever, so the, the need was still there and growing. Um, so they had to develop their whole recruitment process online and onboarding and actually people mm -hmm. working from home. So so they, they, they developed a purely online kind of Zoom-based experience to um, recruit people kind of en masse. And that, that, they got that really well honed and that worked really well. And then, you know, when they started, they said, oh, we need some people in New Zealand to give, you know, overnight energy, energy specialist services for the UK market. We need to recruit people. We've got a process that works perfectly well. It works in New Zealand. No reason why we can't in New Zealand as well so yeah. all of the New Zealand recruitment for the energy specialists is being driven by the UK from the UK with Zoom and they kind of depending on time of year they might have a meeting at like 7pm their time and it'll be 8am our time or mm. whatever um, and they do all of the recruitment like that so they have a, a, a weekly process where they'll bring in kind of a, you know 15 to 20 candidates as a group kind of do a pre presentation and kind of just some activities 
then they broke it, break out into Zoom rooms, have one-on-one -on -one interviews with people that are based, you know, energy specialists do the job in the UK, kind of doing the, going through a bit of a checklist of whether they've got the right skills and so on, and then drop back to more of a group session, and at the end of that, they do a follow-up call. So all this stuff is very, very well honed. Yeah. Didn't exist before COVID, and, but it's sort of, you know, it's what was designed for a local need, um, COVID, now become an international process and works really well. So, the, you know, so there's yeah. just things like that that have, you know, even, even the use of video conferencing, you know, it was too easy to jump on a plane and go to Auckland for a meeting when now you just say, oh, you know, everybody expects that, you know, it's a Zoom call and if you're in the bedroom with a dog barking or, you, you know, you're in, you're in an office or you're down at a park, it doesn't really matter, it's just yeah. everybody knows that that's the way we operate. So all those things, I think, are probably net positive, you know, in terms yeah. of the way that people operate. There's, there's, you know, there's some inefficiencies and there's some nuances you lose with, with not face-to-face, -face, but actually... By and large, people have kind of overcome those. So, yeah. Yeah. And the forgiveness level has gone up so much in terms of, like, like you said, we want to meet them, we need to sit around, versus, well, it's all right, yeah, at home, and you know, you got a baby strapped to you, or whatever it is, or like you say, your kids running around in the background with the nappy on their heads. It's like, yeah, it's all right, just, just carry on. Or the celebration of, yeah, it's a cat, you know, or a, <laughs> or a puppy or a dog, you know, it's like celebrating it. Um, I think it has kind of almost connected us all, but also then, I don't know about you, but I still love this. My real life has more ba bandwidth. The fidelity is still not there. But equally, yeah, it's been an amazing um, tool that people, it was there lo long before it needed to be there, yeah. and now we're bang, we're yeah. amplifying it. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, and, uh, so we've, we've got our office down in Courtney Place, I would say we're probably 90% of people coming into the office, you know, so okay. you know, a, lot of, a lot of the big corporates, you know, they talk about 30, 40, 50% of people coming into the office, the rest working from home, we, we've got yeah, the office, everybody wants to come and kind of be human and see humans and right yeah, yeah there's still a hunger to, and probably because you're a young brand you're still starting you're still building relationships you're still working shit out right yeah. because you're like okay we don't have a template here we're trying to do something we haven't done before and we're not doing it like we did before um that does take a little bit of more space physical space and, and that kind of room to accumulate uh trust and relationships to then build out you know creative acts whatever it might be. Um, I did hear recently that um, Monique has joined you, Monique, who I used to work with in BizDojo, so I know a couple of people. And we had Tom Probert here yeah. a few episodes back, who's now back with Meridian. As yeah. I understand. So it's just like, it's all a small world when it comes to Wellington and New Zealand, yeah. by the way. Yeah, so it's a, it's a fun thing to think about that, that impact of COVID. Um, have you got any other questions that I haven't covered off? Because I realise I've been the one asking questions. Has anybody else got any kind of cool shit to talk about and that I haven't touched off? I was just going to ask you, Ari. Do you what? Do you see a role for local government to mm. get involved as the owner of you know civic and publicly owned spaces and buildings in making energy? renewable energy accessible to communities or prototyping or I'm just thinking about you're talking about smart meters and I'm thinking how amazing it'd be to have a wall dismantled and have the technology in there at a level that children adults you know, could see and engage with and what that meant and do you see a, a role for, um, for them or is it just like banging your head against a brick wall too hard? <laughs> I think a lot of that sort of sort of local government activity at that sort of level is often ineffective. Um, 
because they don't have skin in the game, they don't necessarily understand the real issues and they kind of make assumptions and kind of, you know, um, design a perfectly, you know, well-executed education campaign which completely misses the point, you know, those sorts Mm -hmm. of... So I think there's risk of that. However, I think there is definitely a role for local government at an infrastructure level. You know, you've got, you know, waste energy at TIPS, for example, you know, those generation facilities at at that sort of local generation scale and there may be other, you know, other examples of that. So I think definitely there's a role for local government activity um, in in the scheme of things, but I don't... I don't really see them playing a major role in anything other than maybe the, the you know tacking onto their infrastructure energy and obviously making their energy their their infrastructure more energy efficient um, and you know electrifying their fleets and all those other things are the obvious things to do. But as mm-hmm. as a role in facilitating change or education, I suspect it's probably better left to specialist industry mm-hmm. bodies or players who don't, I suppose, change with election cycles and different. Yep. Values or mission, you know, and, and even even the pace of change, and I think local government tend to think in weeks and months rather than hours and days. Um, mm. yeah. But they've also got uh, the infrastructure point, right, which is local authority led, and some of the charging stations we're seeing being yep, put into absolutely. parking yep. and stuff, yep. which obviously lends itself to discussion about energy and roof and space I just yeah. I often wonder right. wow we've got these massive old buildings that could be lined and my ignorance is going to be really obvious here lined up with generating power for the building and council buildings and I, yeah we, we've got tack on you know add on community spaces that mm. are all struggling yeah. I mean I think at that level yeah I mean you, you know libraries with roofs or you know swimming pools with roofs or whatever absolutely particularly if they're kind of facing the right way and you yeah. know obviously if you're going through a a library re- rebuild project or rebuilding a, a you know sports facility or whatever, make sure it points the right way to get the sun and you know do <laughs> those sorts of things. So yeah, absolutely at that sort of level that you know there's some kind of no-brainer things that should be done. Um, you know the economics may or may not be quite there, but I think you know as an investment for the future, mm. particularly if you optimise it when you get those opportunities, then yeah, absolutely there's no reason why they shouldn't be involved and you know probably they should. Mm. Um, you know you could you could see a a row of council vehicles parked in front of a swimming pool at night charging, you know, or not, not charging overnight, but, you know, you know mm. what I mean? Kind mm. of that, that combined infrastructure stuff. Yeah. We're now starting to see the photovoltaic stuff being yeah. built into, like, glass, you That's know, right. becoming, you know, opaque and, and not opaque, the other one, translucent, and they're not, can't even be seen and stuff. Yeah. So now you're going to have buildings who are just kitted out with normal glass, but in it is generating electricity. I wonder if... It's probably a bit idealistic, but the moral responsibility of local government, government building buildings with public money to not Mm. put in place the best, the most efficient, the most sustainable, to give communities an idea of what's possible. I mean, they they did that at Upper Rickerton Library, the reusable, the the rainwater went through the toilets and they had the science of it. I mean, this was a long time ago, but... It's an example, right? Wonder. It's an element. Yeah, it's, it's using public money to yeah. showcase yeah. long-term good. Wasn't the, the Meridian building one of the first uh, carbon-neutral buildings? I uh, believe on so, the waterfront? Yeah. yeah, that was designed with... Um, yeah. yeah that Which generates good. more power than it creates, or, or neutral power. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, both with its rainwater and its mm. um, yeah solar capture and... Yeah, and there's, there's no car parking there. It's all cycle parking and that sort of thing. Mm. There we go, yeah. yeah, yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. So let's kind of s- urge towards the end with a no- lovely future question. 
So it'd be lovely to kind of uncover what you guys are going to be working on going forward for the next year or so, and also the next five years, or however long you think, 50 to 500 again. So what's kind of on your dance card in the coming weeks, months, years, decades? I heard the phrase this morning, what's next on your runway? What are you looking at on your runway? Your runway. I really like that. We're year one coming up. Like all New, Ze all all New Zealand libraries, we've been offered New Zealand Library Partnership program funding from central government. So it was 58, 58 and a half million. Uh, an idea between Minister Martin and the National Librarian, Bill McNaught, um, in COVID, when we thought that masses of jobs were going to be lost and libraries were, Minister Martin said, you know, you're going to become places where people come for employment support and mm. CV and retraining, but you're not going to be job shops. She said, you're still going to peddle those little packets of magic, meaning the book. So we are coming to the end, public libraries to the end of year one. Um, we've, I've got four new staff, well, th two in, one pending, one recruiting. And we've got a lot of money in technology and, and um, renewal, infrastructure renewal for Waimakariri Libraries, partnerships with local iwi, establishment of community of practice. Mm. So we've got a lot of money at stake that has obviously got a lot of accountability. So my next year is very much bringing those funds, those tools, those people, trying to activate all of that in a way that hits the promises I've made on what we will do but also telling the council the stories of what these people are doing that on July the 1st, 2022, they go back to their previous job or no job. How can we live without those services, yeah. those um, supports, those opportunities that they are creating for the community, and how do I get council to fund that? No small thing. No, it's just... Keep you busy. Yeah. Keep you off the streets. Mm. Yeah. Okay, so that's a good thing. Big term, 20 yeah. year. go on. Activating the need for a Public Libraries Act in New Zealand. So we talk about a, 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 a postcode lottery for health. My personal feeling is this is a postcode lottery for libraries, depending on what a local government will invest per, how many cents per rates dollar, determines what sort of service, support tech a community can have. And I don't... I think that's very fair. Mm. I think that freedom of access to information, the tools to create it and learn is everybody's right regardless of where you live. Yeah. And if I did, had more time, be working <laughs> with some of the great minds of yeah. New Zealand libraries to learn how to activate that because I've not worked at that government level. Mm. I can mm. see you very much mm. playing in that policy space mm. and influencing. But there's and great people like Bill McNaught, Penny Carnaby, Sue Sutherland. Mm these people who've been inspirational people at National Library. Okay. So, yeah, how do we turn that equity ideal, which actually shouldn't be an ideal, mm. it actually should just be a fundamental right. right. So, mm. Cool. What about you, Ari? Uh, I'm pretty sure I won't be here in 500 years. <laughs> <laughs> Five I might be. Um, mm -hmm. I think in sort of that time frame, I think, you know, I, look, I, look, I reflect back on the sort of power shop experience and I think, you know, in many respects, we kind of set the bar for our energy retail customer experience, certainly in New Zealand, arguably other parts of the world as well, and, and kind of 
can take some credit for the industry lifting its game in New Zealand around, you know, around that customer experience and, and the yeah. interactions. Um, and I think the next chapter for me from a sort of personal level is um, the next thing after customer experience is, is kind of that decarbonisation agenda. And at the moment, it's all too hard for customers. You know, if, I, I, I think I, you'd struggle to find anybody on the street who wouldn't be willing to decarbonise their energy usage mm. in some way. But knowing how to, um, yeah. being able to do it, you know, just enable, unlocking that is, is the, the bit that's nigh on impossible. So, you know, I'd like to see the transformation and disruption we made for energy customer experience similar in terms of accessing and, you know, being able to deliver on decarbonisation, make it, you know, easy and accessible in terms of mm. technologies, behaviours, all those things. So that's kind of, you know, that, that sort of five-ish year horizon, you know, okay. look at that and say, okay, there's Octopus. It, you know, if I'm with Octopus, I know I can do a whole bunch of stuff to reduce the, the carbon footprint of my energy, and that's kind of making it, making it easy and possible. It's lovely because it's a new story that has yeah. really... Uh, there hasn't really ignited, uh, I suppose, solutions. Like you said, the customer was one and done that. Yeah, I wouldn't know where to start. You're so right. As a journey for me as a customer, well, do I? Yeah, I want to do that. Where yeah. do you start? If you want to buy an electric yeah. vehicle, where do you start? You know, you've got, you know, and mm-hmm. it's part of the problem. It's kind of self-fulfilling. You know, I talked to a guy in the UK who's doing electric vehicle stuff, and you say, you know, you see the Audis and the Volvo's electric vehicles driving the, the highway. And think, oh, yeah, they're all right. You drive down the motorway here, and you see a shitty old leaf, and you think, oh fuck, is that an electric vehicle? I'm not really that interested. <laughs> yeah. you know, so the, the model choice is a problem. Yeah, indeed. Um, availability is a problem. Cost is yeah. a problem. So there's a whole whole range of challenges. And mm. if you start just cherry picking those things, and you know, take the the bits that are the most difficult, and take those those pain points away, and actually just make those things more accessible, and then it becomes, oh, I've seen a Volvo, I've seen a BMW, I've seen a VW, I've seen a Hyundai. Actually, they're they're okay. I'm, I'm yeah. actually fine with all those. So, yeah, that's yeah. kind of where you need to get to, and, and you know, same with other technologies. Well, the global market's moving that way, isn't it? Yeah, and yeah, so we're going to have to keep a pace to it, or at least try to surf the wave that is that yeah, big change. Yeah. You know, keep ahead of it a little bit. In that regards, that's cool. Is there any questions I haven't asked that uh, you are burning still to ask or th- talk about? Yeah, Surprised we filled within an hour and a half. You got you know, uh, speaking for yeah you know, a natural introvert. With, <laughs> I, I appreciate you yeah. being open to that. Yeah. No, yeah. I, yeah. A face you know, made for radio too and a video camera steering steering. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's different, right? It's always a little bit odd, but you did well. Yeah. No, no, you're just totally cool. I want to thank you both for giving up both your time, which is precious, and then your stories as well. So thank you. Thank you. Really appreciate Welcome. it. Hopefully it went too painful. Nah, that's good. Good. <laughs> I joked with my team this morning. I said by about by the time we landed, I said that's my word quota for most of the day. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because it was four thirty start this morning. <laughs> oh, oh, that's wrong on so many levels. Uh, but no, thank you. That was Creative Welly, episode 19. Thank you again for lending us your ears. Big shout out to David from Flashdog Studios for hosting us. And again to Jono from Empire Films for creating the video podcast, which this audio comes from. Check us out at creativewelly.com to subscribe in all the manners you want to subscribe to. And keep having courageous conversations with bold humans.